How are you? I can't hear you. Excellent, excellent. Um, we certainly appreciate your patience. As you know, uh, Route 1 is a parking lot. And uh, it's been a challenge to get here. But uh, we are so delighted that you are here to join us in this extraordinary moment. My name is Eddie Glaude, and I'm a professor in the religion department and the Center for African American Studies. On behalf of the Center, Princeton University Press, and the Toni Morrison Lectures Selection Committee, I have been given the task, and a delightful task it is, to welcome each of you to this historic occasion and to introduce the person who will introduce our esteemed speaker tonight. But first, let me say a few words about this moment. It has indeed been an amazing month at Princeton. We've witnessed the transformation of African American studies from a program to a center. We have seen many African American alumni return to campus to experience a new beginning where old festering wounds start to heal. And now we find ourselves in this place among giants to inaugurate what, would be, what will become the most important lecture in race throughout the entire world, the Toni Morrison Lectures. And how fitting that these lectures are named after Toni Morrison. Rare indeed is it that we find ourselves with the opportunity to witness, to encounter, to walk in the same space with someone whose very existence and presence in the world signals the possibility of its salvation. To be sure, the Morrison Lectures celebrate the expansiveness of Miss Morrison's genius by providing a platform for new and exciting work of scholars and writers, as Valerie Smith, our beloved director, has written, who have risen to prominence both in the academy and, and in the broader world of letters. But there is another dimension to this, a personal dimension, I must admit. And that is that we honor you because you have loved us so much. You have challenged us, and you have given us a language to express our deepest fears, hopes, and aspirations. Your footprints, Professor Morrison, will mark the path forever of grace and love. We have been made better because of you. And for generations to come, Ms. Morrison, people from all over the world will know that you grace this institution 
with your power and presence. Now I have the privilege to introduce our wonderful provost, Christopher Eisgruber, the Lawrence S. Rockefeller Professor of Public Affairs in the Woodrow Wilson School and the University Center for Human Values. I just demonstrated my breath control. <laughs> He's the author of Religious Freedom and the Constitution and co-authored with Lawrence Sager and Constitutional Self-Government, as well as numerous articles and books and academic journals. From 2001 through June 2004, he served as our director of, pro of the program in law and public affairs. Before joining in Prince the Princeton faculty in 2001, he clerked for Judge Patrick Higginbotham of the U.S. Court of Appeals and for Justice Paul Stevens of the U.S. Supreme Court, and then served for 11 years on the faculty of the New York University School of Law. He's a member of the American Law Institute. And you know, of course, Pro Provost Eisgruber received his A.B. magnum cum laude. I had to say that. In physics. <laughs> from Princeton. An M.Lit. in politics from Oxford University. And a J.D. from the University of Chicago Law School. I just want you to know that he has been one of the most important forces in transforming African-American studies at Princeton and making this moment right now possible. Uh, during the uh, alumni gathering, I took the liberty of describing our dear president, Shirley Tillman, as sister president likening her to Sister Janetta Cole, who was the president of Spelman during my tenure there, I think I want to take another liberty. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the privilege to introduce to you who will introduce my beloved brother and teacher and guide and mentor, our provost, our brother, Brother Christopher Eisgrove. What a pleasure it is for me to be able to welcome all of you here this evening. And what a privilege it is to introduce tonight's speaker, who will inaugurate the Toni Morrison Lectures. As Professor Glaude has already told you, these lectures spotlight new and exciting work of scholars and writers who have risen to prominence both in the academy and in the broader world of letters. I cannot imagine a more fitting way to honor Toni Morrison, whose magnificent work exemplifies how intellectual achievement can bridge the academy and the larger public domain. Before I introduce our inaugural lecturer tonight, let me just say a brief word about Professor Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison has been important to this university in many ways. Most obviously, she has been one of our brightest stars, a dazzling talent in, on a faculty filled with talent. But she's been much more than that here at Princeton. Every community needs its storytellers. And Toni Morrison has been for us on this campus a gifted storyteller for Princeton. 
President Shirley Tillman has frequently called upon Tony to give voice to some of the university's most special moments. Tony spoke, for example, at the dinner last year when the university announced its new initiative in the creative and performing arts. At that dinner, she talked movingly about how the arts help us to name our world and thereby to comprehend it. Toni Morrison has contributed splendidly to naming many pieces and experiences and aspects of this university. And so, it is wonderful that this university should now have a lecture series named for Toni Morrison. Princeton is, of course, a campus defined by many names. Some of those names describe places, Nassau Hall, for example, Fitz Randolph Gate, once closed to the world but opened forever by the events and classes of the 1960s and 70s. Stanhope Hall, always known as one of the oldest buildings on campus and now to be renowned as the home for Princeton's new center in African American studies. Perhaps most important of all are the names of the luminous students, alumni, and faculty who, like Toni Morrison, have carried forth this university's mission on this campus and in the larger world. To that list of Princeton University names must be added the name of tonight's speaker. I suspect that many of you know his remarkable biography. He entered Harvard University at age 17 and graduated, and I can't do this phrase as well, magna cum laude, in three years, in three years, with a degree in Near Eastern languages and literatures. He then came to Princeton for his graduate education and received his doctorate in philosophy in 1980. After appointments at the Union Theological Seminary, Yale, Haverford, and the University of Paris, he returned to this university in 1988, where he joined its faculty and served as its director of Princeton's program in African American Studies. He left us for that other university to the north of us. <laughs> but he returned to Princeton in 2002. He is the author of many important and provocative books, including the classic Race Matters and, more recently, Democracy Matters. In addition to a bibliography, which most of our faculty has, our speaker this evening has both a discography and a filmography, <laughs> having appeared in two of the Matrix films. He is one of the most renowned public intellectuals of our time. In 1996, this university conferred upon him its James Madison Medal, the highest honor that Princeton gives to a graduate alumnus. And of course, he has received other awards that are too numerous to list. These achievements by themselves might be enough to add our speaker to the list of names that make Princeton what it is. But for me, his name is a Princeton name because of the contributions he makes on our campus, within our community. His undergraduate classes attract huge enrollments. He's a magnet for graduate students. His intellectual breadth is stunning and he attends conferences on topics that might at first seem far removed from his interests. He's been a leader in defining our program and now our center in African American studies. 
and he makes many other contributions, large and small. Two years ago, we were working hard to retain a very distinguished faculty member, and I've always thought that the turning point came when tonight's speaker gave that faculty member a spontaneous hug alongside Canon Green. Our speaker has, in many ways, made an imprint upon, has inscribed his name upon this university. He has titled his lectures this weekend, The Gifts of Black Folk in the Age of Terrorism. It's now my great pleasure to introduce to you one of Princeton's great names, our class of 1943 University Professor of Religion, Dr. Cornell West. Thank you so very much. I'd like to thank Provost Brother Chris Hyatt's grouper for those very kind and generous words of introduction. I'd like to salute each and every one of you for coming out tonight, and those who so choose to come out tomorrow night, because Professor Eddie Glaude, my dear brother Eddie, is absolutely right. This is a very special moment not just in the history of Princeton University, and not just in the history of American civilization, but this is a very special moment in the early part of the 21st century to salute and pay tribute to such a towering artist, an inimitable genius among us, and I have been so blessed to know Toni Morrison for over 17 years. That she changed my life. She enriched my life. I cannot conceive of who I am, not just as an intellectual, not just as an academic, but as a human being without her art, her witness, and her very deep friendship. Uh, and I must say that there's so many persons here who also would want to pay such tribute. I look out on the audience and see Sister Kathleen Battle, one of the great operatic artists of our time, who. Tony Morrison wrote Honey and Rue together. Where's Sister Kathleen? Just raise your hand. Let's give Sister Kathleen Battle a hand. <laughs> She's sitting next to one of the great figures of contemporary Christendom. My dear brother, going back now 30 years, Reverend Dr. James Forbes and his beloved wife, Betty, both of you, too, just looking at you in memories of Jim Washington and James Cone and Samuel Roberts and E. C. Eric Lincoln and all of those folk who have meant so very much to me. It's so very kind for you all to make that five-hour ride from New York, <laughs> given the Route 1 traffic jam. <laughs> Brother Theodore Cross is here, who's been a veteran. Long distance running, struggle against white supremacy as a white brother, based on principle and justice. Just raise your hand, though, Brother Ted Cross. 
Let's give him a hand. Let's give him a hand. And of course, there's so, so many Princeton faculty. I want to salute my leader and director, uh, the assistant professor Valerie Smith for the work that you do and Thanks, Professor Melissa Harris. Lace Wells here somewhere. Uh, where is she? There she is. Absolutely. She's brand new, but already hit the ground running. Of course, you sit next to a vice provost who's standing in the great legacy of the Ruth Simmonses and others. Mr. Terry Reed, raise your hand. We can go on and on. But I, uh, uh, I do want to acknowledge those who've made such a difference. I see my dear Brother Dean David Dopkin, who I not just respect but love very dearly. Just raise your hand, Brother David. Give, 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 the, give the dean a hand. Oh, yes. No, you, you can't talk about the rich legacy of Toni Morrison without talking about how one goes about embracing each other and staying in contact with the humanity of each other. Because believe me, when the American Gibbon comes along, and writes the grand history of the rise and fall of the American Empire. And someday the American Empire will fall. We hope not soon. Some of us will go down swinging like Ella Fitzgerald and Muhammad Ali to ensure that a democratic experiment remains afloat. But sooner or later, the American experiment in democracy will come to an end. And when that American given emerges, he or she will have much to say about a monumental text written in 1851 by a literary genius named Herman Melville, wrestling with the whiteness of a whale. will have much to say, a classic of 1929, The Sound and the Fury, written by that white literary blues man. William Faulkner, and will have much to say about the classic 1987, Beloved, written by Princeton's own Tony Morrison. That's part of what it is to be part of the literary immortality. And I just wish that her own beloved parents, Rama and George Wofford, could look down from the porch of heaven and see what their beloved little girl at that time, and now towering giant that she is, see how it all turned out. That here, this Princeton University, for over two centuries, Pursuing academic excellence, yes, but locked into its own male supremacy, white supremacy, and anti-Semitic myopia. Could in 2006 declare that one of the ways of ensuring that the world is safe for Toni Morrison and her legacy is to bring lectures here to speak not once but twice. <laughs> that says something, doesn't it? I see my dear sister No Leeway Rooks always a blessing to see you twice, No Leeway. <laughs> to reflect on what it means to be human, what it means to be modern, what it means to be New World and American.
my own personal and precious memories of Tony Morrison go back to a phone call I received in 1988 when I had returned from Yale and I was thoroughly committed to remaining in New York to Big Apple until the day I die. And Tony Morrison said, uh, Cornell, it would be wonderful if we went to Princeton together to create an intellectual neighborhood. Echoes of that first line of Zula. There once was a neighborhood. The nightstand gone. Flagstand gone. Is that fair, Griffin, in the audience, head of the Center for the Study of Black Culture at Columbia University? Raise your hand, Farah. Let's give Farah a hand. I didn't know she was here. My God. They have come from all over the country for Tony Morris written some of the most powerful essays on Toni Morrison. She ought to be next in line, but that's just my opinion at the moment. <laughs> but yes, it was then in 1989 when we came together. Just two years after she had written Beloved, and one year after she had completely initiated a slow but sure paradigm shift in literary criticism. I'm thinking of October 7th, 1988, when she gave the 1988 Tanner Lectures at University of Michigan. Unspokable thoughts unspoken. The Afro-American presence in American literature. And for students, it's in the University of Michigan Review of 1989. It's right here in the library, this magnificent Firestone Library. Hunt it down. Take a look at it. What it really means to reflect on the doings and sufferings of people of African descent as manifest in literary expression and productions. I was blessed to be in the car with her as we rode for five hours to Harvard in 1991 when she gave those famous William Massey lectures that produced plain in the dark, whiteness and the literary imagination. As you recall, Tony, our host was the uh, arch-neoconservative Stephen Thernstrom and his blessed wife, Abigail. You remember that? They were very kind and hospitable. <laughs> Indeed. But what a time we had. And I can recall Tony just holding that crowd in the palm of her hand as she reflected on Melville and Hemingway and Faulkner and a whole host of other towering figures wrestling with that question. What kind of imagination does it take to somehow erase black presence given the seething presence of black folk in the larger society? What mechanisms of denial have to be in place to somehow render invisible what seems to be so indispensable in the history? of American culture and literature. And yes, I was blessed to be there in Stockholm when she received the Nobel Prize. Tears flowing from her eyes. She walked with such grace, such dignity, and gave one of the most magnificent presentations in the history of the Nobel Prize laureate tradition, reflecting on language. And I could go on and on. I, I think of Brother Ford's marriage. 
March of 1999, dancing with Gloria Baldwin, the sister of James Baldwin. I was breakdancing. I didn't figure out what she was doing, but <laughs> we were having a good time. But I begin this lecture on a very, very personal note. To ask me to give the Toni Morrison lectures as the first person to inaugurate such a tradition moves me at the deepest level. And I want to thank you, Tony, for these years and the memories. I want to begin my lecture by evoking the epigraph of Oscar Wilde. He says, a true artist believes absolutely in herself because she is absolutely herself free, courageous, willing to speak from the depths of her, his own soul. And when I think of the gifts of black folk in the age of terrorism, I'm highlighting the best of the black struggle for freedom. But it's not just about civil rights. It's not just about economic and social rights. It's psychic. It's existential. And it's social, political, and economic. You see. W.B. Du Bois wrote a classic in 1924 called The Gift of Black Folk, oftentimes overlooked and downplayed. Of course, we teach the souls of black folk here every year not just in our American Studies program classes. But 21 years later, Du Bois wrote The Gift of Black Folk. We talked about in chapter four, the emancipation of democracy, a gift of black people. Reconstruction of freedom, a gift of black people. Quest for the humanity of women, Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman and Ida B. Wells Barnett. Of course, he would include Toni Morrison if he had a chance to revise it and come back from the dead, as it were. Talked about American folk song. Talked about the gift of spirit in this classic. I want to build on Du Bois's legacy and this initial effort to pay tribute to our beloved Toni Morrison. I want to begin with... The first gift, it's what I call the philosophic gift that black people have given America and the world. It's a philosophic gift that takes the form of Socratic questioning and interrogation. What it really means to take seriously line 38A of Plato's Apology, the unexamined life is not worth living. And we can hear Malcolm X in the background. The examined life is painful. What does it really mean to muster the courage to think critically for oneself at a cost? To be willing to pay.
pay a burden. Being courageous to think critically. We here at Princeton put a premium on critical reflection, critical examination, beginning with self, society, and the world. But this first gift of black folk has to do with courage, very much like that particular Athenian who walked around barefoot, pop belly, flat nose, huge lips, large neck, serious about examining himself. In fact, that line in the Greek actually said, the unexamined life is not a life for the human. We know our English word human derives from the Latin humando. I'll see more tomorrow about the connection to the 12th paragraph of Vico's great text, The New Science of 1744, and the ways in which humando was tied to a generation of history the way in which mortality has everything to do with generating agency. But this preoccupation with humando, which means burial, burial, in the earth, in the dirt, the humic, H-U-M-I-C, connected to the human, H-U-M-A-N. It's where our word humility also comes from. Being close to the earth, tied to the dirt. And this preoccupation, burial, earth, funk. Black folk have been willing to raise the most terrifying question in the midst of America's precious experiment in democracy, which is, what does it mean to be human? Especially when your humanity is radically called into question, given the vicious legacy of white supremacy, trying to convince the world that this particular slice of humanity is less beautiful, less intelligent, less moral. Yet here comes these folk saying, we're going to raise this frightening query to this civilization. We know that you're preoccupied with market activity. We know you're preoccupied with mobility. We know you understand yourself to be a land of liberty and freedom, but we have a fundamental question that people have asked down through the corridors of time. What does it really mean to be human, to be featherless, two-legged, linguistically conscious creatures born between urine and feces? And to know that our bodies will one day be the culinary delight of terrestrial worms. Who you're going to be in the meantime? How do you define yourself? Who are you really when you take off the mask? Who do you see when you look in the mirror and allow those who perceive you as you look in the mirror to tell you something about yourself, especially of those who are saying so are those who you are standing, those who upon whom's necks you stand. It's a very uncomfortable Socratic situation. It has everything to do with wrestling with death in its various forms. 
course, one could argue that there's a real sense in which America, understanding itself as a city on the hill, the experiment that can solve any problem, has no constraint, it cannot go beyond, no limits can constrain it. And we hear that every January in whatever in our State of the Union put forward, be it Democrat or Republicans, there's no problem we cannot solve because we are American. See, Professor Jeff stopped there. Is that right, though, Jeff? We hear it every year. And we say, oh, wait a minute. Du Bois raised the question, how does it feel to be a problem in African body in which it looks as if there's something here that remains difficult to come to terms with? And it's not just political. It has to do with mustering the courage to think critical about your relation to burial, to death and forms of death. And one of the fundamental gifts of black folk in the history of America is precisely that of raising that Socratic question of a love of wisdom that acknowledges it as a meditation on and preparation for death and keeps track of the forms of death in America's past and present. What do you mean, Brother West? Social death. American barbarity, American bestiality, American brutality called American slavery. 244 years hemispheric in, in terms of the first presence of the Africans, 1619 to 1863, but for the first 79 years in the experiment, in the experiment of American democracy, social death to invoke the category of that magisterial text of Orlando Patterson at the other institution of slavery and social death. What does it mean for a people to be on intimate terms with forms of death, to be in close proximity with forms of death in a society that understands itself as a grand city on the hill, which in many ways is a death-dodging, death-ducking, death-denying civilization. It's what Henry James called a hotel civilization. One of the reasons why he left America and went to Britain. In the eyes of some critics, wrote his best novels. What is it? About these particular people, Henry James would say, they're full of tremendous energy, technological innovation, preoccupied with upward mobility, but there's a sense in which there's a hollowness there. There's a shallowness there because they don't want to come to terms with death and despair and dread. They view themselves like those in a hotel, preoccupied with comfort, convenience, contentment. The hotel is a place for what? The lights are always on. Leave your hotel and it's dirty and come back as clean. You don't know who cleaned you. You don't know whether they're being treated with dignity or not. It's just about you. It's about your contentment. It's about your own enjoyment. So somehow you think you can muddle through history and downplay the forms of death in your midst. And of course, the U.S. Constitution is a good candidate, isn't it? Look at the grand democratic institution created by those towering found, founding fathers and what do we see no mention of the word slave no mention of reference to the institution of slavery only an invoking of slave trade why because it's denial Joseph Ellis one of the American leading American historians said it's a conspiracy of silence is an interesting friction and tension no it's more than that 
It's hypocrisy. It's mendacity. And you do reap what you sow. Chickens do come home to roost. Somehow you think you can escape from reality. Escape from history. Escape from mortality. But sooner or later, that truth begins to haunt you. Truth crushed to earth shall rise again. And we know, in fact, that that U.S. Constitution needed some serious Socratic questioning and interrogations. Thank you, Frederick Douglass. Thank you, David Walker, and appeal to colored citizens of the world. Thank you, Maria Evans. And thank you, William Lloyd Garrison, for enacting that Socratic energy that allowed us to transform a pro-slavery document. It's very important to understand the U.S. Constitution in that way, even given all the wonderful aspects that it has alongside that pro-slavery stance. Part of the genius of the founding fathers was to acknowledge they were fallible, therefore they allowed for amendments. You end up with the 13th Amendment amending something not invoked in your Constitution. You end up abolishing an institution not even acknowledging your Constitution. It's a little embarrassing. <laughs> it's true. It's true. But American slavery, already a form of terrorism. 9-11, nothing new for people of African descent if you understand it in terms of terrorism as a form of individual, group, or state action that attempts to engage in the murdering or maiming of innocent people and attempts to render them so intimidated and scared that they walk around deferential to the powers that be. A lot of people come up to me and say, Oh, Brother Wes, I just can't, over this, can't get over this sense of thinking about terrorism all the time. I said, you don't say. <laughs> it's true. I was in New York 9-11. I was campaigning for Freddie Ferrer. It was election day that day. We'd been going at it for a whole week. And I saw that second plane crash. And I said to myself, more tears, innocent human beings, lives gone. And I also said to myself, for the first time in, in the history of the country, all Americans now feel unsafe, unprotected, subject to random violence, and hated for who they are. I said to be a nigger in America for the first 350 years, to be unsafe, unprotected, subject to random violence, and hated for who they are. Am I witnessing the niggerization of the nation? How will they respond? How will they wrestle? How will they grapple with this sense of feeling so unsafe, unprotected, subject to random and arbitrary violence, and thoroughly hated for who they are? My brothers and sisters walk up to me. I just can't get over, can't get over this sense of being hated. So I say, ask Sister Leticia about it. she tell you. Ask Brother Jamal about it. He'll tell you. It's been the response of black folk in the age of terrorism that does not begin 
with 9-11 begins when the first Africans stepped off that slave ship. As Du Bois has said over and over again in his text, already a form of war with collaboration of African chiefs and European elites coagulating in such a way to, to gain access to those bodies that put them on those ships to constitute that cargo that generates 52,400 voyages between 1444 and the last ones in Brazil, 1888. I'm talking about the hemisphere at this point. Fundamental pillar for the making of the Americas, the modern world, and lo and behold, one of the gifts of black folk in America and in other places of the hemisphere is to not just talk about, but to enact this Socratic energy with tremendous cost. And this, and I, I want to stress this. I'm going to come back to this tomorrow when we talk about paideia because there's a sense in which people often associate Socratic energy with just chit-chat, running at the mouth, trying to be clever and smart, and not recognizing that it's about life and death. It's about joy and sorrow. And when you talk about people of African descent being Socratic, they already had had to reach the conclusion that they were willing to live and die for, ironically, democratic ideals. In the face of a society that describes itself as democratic, but engaged in terroristic treatment of such folk. And that's just social death. There was a fascinating story, 1855. Thomas Crawford was asked to design the Statue of Liberty, which now sits on the Capitol Dome in Washington, D.C. Some of you might know this story. It's a fascinating one. And he had designed the Statue of Liberty in such a way that he put the Liberty cap on the head of the, the figurine. And that liberty cat was associated with the French Revolution. It was actually outlawed in Great Britain. The conservatives were very clever in terms of keeping track of some of the influences of various progressive activity. But when Jefferson Davis, who was then the Secretary of War, saw that cap of liberty, he said, no, you got to do away with that. Because in Rome, that was associated with emancipated slaves. And we do not want our slaves to think that the American ideals of democracy has anything to do with them. Of course, this is the same Jefferson Davis who would engage in, along with various comrades, in an organized violent insurrection to overthrow the U.S. government called the Confederacy. Look at that, and they replaced it with a feathered helmet. You say, hmm, even at the architectural level, the hypocrisy still there. The Socratic questioning and interrogation still being pushed to the margins. 
And of course, we need not go into the 620,000 lives lost, each life so precious on both sides, as a result of what? Wrestling with the vicious legacy of white supremacy and the ways in which it promoted the arrested development of precious American democracy. One of the wonderful things about Princeton we now acknowledge, and I do want to salute not just Shirley Tillman, but also Harold Shapiro and Sister Vivian for saying, you know what, we reach a point where we acknowledge we not just have a center at Princeton, but we also acknowledge that legacy of white supremacy sits at the center of the American democratic experiment when it comes to ways in which we can either be better and courageous, or ways in which we can regress and fall, find ourselves falling back into business as usual. And it has nothing to do with pity for Negroes. It has nothing to do with being psychologically sensitive to newcomers. It has nothing to do with feeling good about oneself. It has everything to do about being Socratic. And if there's any mission, Princeton University, it begins with the Socratic imperative to engage in self-examination. Uh, that first gift of being Socratic under conditions of social death, of course, resulted in some of the greatest breakthroughs, not just in the history of America, but the history of the world. Look at the 14th Amendment. Gave due process to every citizen in America. The 14th Amendment was the first time that the United States put forward a definition of what it meant to be a citizen. All having to do with one question. What are we going to do with these four million ex-slaves? And unfortunately, I was just reading in the Times just yesterday that we've got some serious challenges to uh, uh, due process at the moment in terms of torture and so forth and so on. But how precious it is. Every citizen who comes to America, I don't care when and from where, has access to due process equality under the law as a result of wrestling with the status of these four million ex-black slaves in America. And it's reverberations far beyond black community, far beyond self-interest, far beyond group parochial sensibility and has everything to do with how we create conditions under which we either hang together or hang separately. But you all know for those 12 years in the sun, as Du Bois put it, the first grand experiment in multiracial democracy and the reconstruction, we had more black senators then, both from Mississippi, than we do today. Well, Brother Obama's all by himself. And he's hot these, these days, isn't he? On the cover of almost every magazine you look at. Can't turn the television without seeing his face. Fascinating, brother. Brilliant, brother. We'll see how courageous. Push for him. But he's all by himself. In terms of black presence. He's probably one of the few non-millionaires in the Senate, but that's just a footnote. <laughs> but after... Reconstruction with the withdrawal of the troops. Here comes another form of death, civic death. Jim Crow, Jane Crow, lynching, 
Every two and a half days for one third of a century, a black man, a black woman, a black child hanging from some tree that strange fruit the southern trees bears the great Billy Holiday sing about with such power and the Jewish brother Mary Pole writing the lyrics, keeping track of forms of death in the midst of the American experience. Socratic interrogation vis-a-vis that form of death. What a time it was. form of American terrorism that was post-slavery, but doing everything possible to create Negroes small in. And how do you create Negroes small in? You make sure that they always doubt themselves. You make sure that they always view themselves through a white normative gaze so that they have tremendous Tremendous uh, difficulty generating sources of self-respect and self-regard and self-determination and self-love. Make them deferential. Make them just objects of amusement and entertainment. Make them on the margin socially but at near the center of your labor process. Generate Negroes small in as a way of ensuring that they are civically dead even as their labor is necessary and even as their cultural genius can be appropriated by the emerging entertainment industry with their blues. Somebody's responding here. (laughs) Fine with me. And if there's one major point I would like to leave you with, and I'm not finished though, but this is a major point. It has to do with one of the towering responses to American terrorism. I think it's no accident that Toni Morrison has written one marvelous play. It's called Dreaming because August 1955 was one of the most significant moments in the history of American civilization. It was when a young, beautiful, precious black brother, 14 years old in gut bucket Jim Crow, Mississippi, was murdered by American terrorists, cowardly white supremacists, as he winked at a white sister. Murdered him, cut him up, threw him in the river. Tallahatchie Bridge, was the song says. And Mamie Teal said, we're going to bring his body back. We're going to remember him, given his dismemberment. And we're going to keep the casket open. We're going to put it in Robert's temple of church and God in Christ in the south side of Chicago. And the president and the governor and the mayor said, keep the casket closed. Why? Because we don't want to expose and reveal and unearth this night side, this form of death in the midst of American democracy. We're telling the world we've achieved rough justice in August of 1955. Amy Till said no. Mm -mm. 
We're going to keep this casket open. We're going to invite John Johnson and Jet Magazine and Ebony Magazine to take pictures so that in every Negro barbershop and beauty salon, it will be visible. We're going to open that church. We're going to open it, as black churches have always done historically, to white brothers and sisters as well as black. 50,000 fellow citizens marched through that little church to take a look at Emmett Till's body. It was the first massive civil rights demonstration three months before courageous Sister Rosa Parks sat down in order to stand up for justice in Montgomery, December 1955. And the moment, and this is a grand gift, um, the moment Mamie Till stepped up to the pulpit and looked over the lectern and saw her baby his head was five times the size of his ordinary head it was her only baby his father had fought in the U.S. Army she's still in her thirties and she looks out on the crowd and what does she say she says I don't have a minute to hate I'll pursue justice for the rest of my life. Not just Socratic in terms of the questioning and interrogation. It was also connected to this second gift of black folk to America and the world. This is an ethical gift of prophetic witness. She didn't have to read Plato to know that Socrates is never depicted as, as crying. He never sheds a tear. He argues, but Amos cries, and Jesus weeps, because they love so. Socrates loves wisdom, but as Gregory Vlastos, our dear teacher, Professor Alexander Nehemiah, distinguished classical scholar, says, does Socrates ever love the concrete person? Does he understand what the sources of the tears actually are? Does he ever love enough concretely to weep? And whether Gregory Vlossos is right or wrong, I think he's right, but whether he's right or wrong, Emma Till's mother understood she could be Socratic and prophetic at the same time. And what a gift Martin King had the same challenge when he had to preach the eulogy of four young sisters, September 1963, in Birmingham, the 16th Street Baptist Church. American terrorists killed those four precious young black sisters. First time he cried in public. He said, in the face of this kind of terror, somehow we must muster the armor of love and justice. The age of terrorism going all the way back. to myself when America is niggerized in the way that I'm talking about terrorized in the way that I've alluded to do we hear enough voices like Emma Till's mother do we hear enough voices like Martin King if Emma Till's mother at that particular moment had engaged in 
melodramatic narratives that have to do with pure victims and impure victimizers, with pristine heroes and tainted villains. If she engaged in a Manichaean view of the world, well, we're the axis of good, and these white folk are the axis of evil. If she had said, we ought to hunt these terrorists down like cockroaches and bring them back dead or alive. If black people in general had responded to American terrorism in that way, there would be no such thing as American democracy because there'd be a civil war every generation. In fact, I often say as a joke, white brothers and sisters ought to just look at Negroes and give them a standing ovation. <laughs> Thank you for producing Martin King. Thank you for producing Thurgood Marshall. Thank you for producing Duke Ellington. Thank you for producing Paul Robeson. Thank you for producing Jesse Owens. And those are just members of Alpha Phi Alpha. <laughs> My fraternity. Thank you for Sojourner Truth. Thank you for Harriet Tubman. Why? Because there is no black Al-Qaeda. There is no black IRA. There is no black PLO. There is no black Ergon. What goes into the making of these particular peoples beneath American democracy but holding democratic ideals in their souls even as they face American terrorism for over 300 years? This is not romanticizing people. This is not idealizing people. We're talking about the gifts of black folk in an age of terrorism begins in 1619 and goes all the way up to the present. What is that third gift? And how's my time? What is that third gift? We call the philosophic gift of Socratic questioning and interrogation. The ethical gift of prophetic witness in the name of love and justice. His third gift is that which shatters the melodramatic narratives and Manichaean views of the world. It's an artistic gift. It's a tragic comic gift. It's called the blues. It's not just an aesthetic genre. It's a mode of being. It's a way of life. What Duke Ellington says in his autobiography, Music is My Mistress, Black folk have made dissonance a way of life. It's as if they had, they had read the greatest German poet's fragment, Hurdling's great fragment of April 1795 called Judgment and Being. Judgment on one side of the leaf and being on the other side of the leaf saying, Life is dissonant all the way down. Learn how to live in the minor key. Learn the offbeat temporality. Don't stay on the beat. Be around the beat. Sister Joanne Mitchell, now at University of Pennsylvania, but our dearly beloved Vice Provost, she understands what I'm talking about. A blue sensibility, but it's tragic, comic to the core. And it's a way of saying to America, you can grow old, you can go, grow rich, you can grow wealthy, but you will never grow up if you don't come to terms with forms of death in your midst. Because 
to learn how to respect reality in all of its various dimensions, the joy and the sorrow, to learn how to wrestle with history, to learn how to grapple with mortality is a sign of maturity. And the blues is simply an idiom for the mature. You see, that's what it is. It's one of the reasons why a white literary blues man born Tom Lanier but known to the world as Tennessee Williams entitled his first collection of plays American Blues because he knew it's not just a function of phenotype. He says, yes, I'm a blues man, too. I'm learning something from those Negroes, too. Because I got to get some distance from this hotel civilization. That American Hamlet Blanche, you can't, world, you can't live in a world of make-believe. You can't escape from reality. Sooner or later, the chickens come home to roost. Don't you realize that the night side of things is going to hit you head on as you continue to lie to yourself? To tell mendacious stories about yourself? Tell us, Tennessee, that streetcar named Desire, that wonderful play of December 3rd, 1947 on Broadway with a brother named Marlon Brando, Jessica Tanti, and others telling a story rooted in so much of this tragic comic gift. Of course, black music itself is a major character in the play coming out of Five Deuces, the jazz club. Acknowledging the challenge, the fundamental challenge that F.O. Matheson posed to America right before he committed suicide in Harvard in 1950. He said, would America move from perceived innocence to corruption without a mediating stage of maturity? And in 2006, if there's something we need more than anything else, it's not just a certain kind of politics, though that would help. But it's a maturity that has everything to do with a Socratic gift that highlights the courage to think critically at a cost. A prophetic witness that has to do with mustering the courage, not just to care. Courage to love. Tony Morrison's Beloved. But one monumental moment in a corpus in which, as she says in her, one of her wonderful interviews, my text, my characters press toward love. And this is a grand gift connected to that second one. That black folk have been willing to speak publicly about love. Martin King is not an accident. John Coltrane's A Love Supreme is not an accident. James Baldwin's essay shot through every line with a love sensibility. Marvin Gaye's What's Going On in Spring of 1971 shot through with a love. August Wilson, Ain't Esther, who dies in the 1980s because he doesn't see enough love even in the black community. And the decay, the self-hatred, the self-violation, the self-flagellation, the self-destruction becomes more and more pervasive. Love not reduced to Hollywood conceptions of wavered and sentimental emotion. 
rooted in a steadfast will that bends toward companionship. In that tragic comic mode, the blues sensibility brings together the spirituality of Socratic questioning that highlights various forms of dogma like white supremacy and male supremacy and imperial arrogance and homophobic privilege. with the spirituality of genuine compassion. And it has nothing to do with American optimism. It has everything to do with hope, a mature, hard-earned hope. That's a hope against the grain, that wonderful line in Du Bois's great text, a hope not hopeless but unhopeful. What do you mean, Du Bois? Could write a dissertation just on that line. A hope, not hopeless, but unhopeful. Reminds you of the blues. Been down so long, down don't worry me no more. That's why I keep keeping on. Interesting. Brother Eddie Glaude and I were just with B.B. King in Berlin, his last farewell tour in Germany. That brother broke off in that song, Nobody Loves Me But My Mama, and she might be jiving too. (laughs) Boy, you need some serious strength to be able to look that kind of darkness in the eye. But like Emmett Till's mother, Mamie, and like Martin King, you don't find yourself sliding down a slippery slope to bitterness and revenge, but you smile through that darkness. You learn how to laugh in the midst of such despair so that your hope that comes out on the other side is sustaining, sobering, but still open to others. It reminds me of that wonderful character in Toni Morrison's great novel, Song of Solomon, about Pilate, now in with Pilate. She said, I, just, I wish that I had lived longer so I could have loved more. You see, if I'd known more, I would have loved more. And it has nothing to do with abstract sentimental discourse about truncated and sophomoric versions of pity. It has everything to do with courage to think critically, love of wisdom, a courage to empathize, love of the concrete other, and a courage to hope and hold all forms of optimism and sentimentalism and cynicism at arm's length. Let me stop there, and we shall resume tomorrow night. Thank you all so very much. Well, we've got good time for question and answer, queries, commentary, reflection.
please don't hesitate. How are we doing with time? We're not too bad. Do not hesitate. Not to tell. No, it's a very good question, though, brother. I think, um, first, just historically speaking, certainly when it comes to ecological and environmental struggle, that black folk have not been on the cutting edge. The preoccupation with white supremacy and other forms of inequality are such that black folk have much to learn from ecological activists and so on. So that the Socratic interrogation is something that takes a variety of different forms, and therefore we all have much to learn from each other in this regard. I think that more and more, Ben Chavis and the others back in the 1980s talking about ecological and environmental racism, why it is that working poor and wor working class, working poor and dis disproportionately black and brown and red communities bear more of the burden when it comes to the, the, the kind of night side of, of, of ecological practices. And I, 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 I think that we're seeing more and more voices coming out of the black community in this regard. I think much of it has to do with trying to understand nature as I, thou, rather than an it. Uh, I it relation it has something to do with acknowledging we've got to learn how to cooperate as opposed to just dominate uh, nature and actually allow nature to speak back in a kind of metaphoric sense. But that's the beginning of an answer to your question. It's a crucial one. It's a crucial one. See? Yes. Well, we'll, we'll let's wait till the brother comes down with you. Professor, um, yeah. where do you see uh, the relationship between um, whites and blacks going a decade, 20, 30 years when, when I'm a grandparent. What do you think we're going to see then? You going to be a grandparent in 10 years, you think? <laughs> oh, you got it working. No, no I, 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 I believe you. You, 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 you going to work this thing out, though, huh? All right. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding, though. You no, you do what you got to do. <laughs> No, uh, I appreciate the question. I think that uh, one cannot make any wholesale generalizations. I think that, for example, um, among the well-to-do fellow citizens and among the highly educated classes, uh, there is a free flow of interaction, much of it humane, across race and across color. This is part of the great progress that we've made, and that it cannot be denied. This is part of what our being together is all about. This is how Princeton has bounced back in such a magnificent way from the worst of its history. What I talked about before, the anti-Semitism, the male supremacy, and white supremacy, and so forth. Now, of course, as Malcolm X says, you don't stab folk in the back nine inches, pull it out three inches, and celebrate your progress, right? So, you, so, we, so then you've got the issue of lower middle classes, working classes, working poor, and very poor. Now, once you make that class shift, then you begin to see 
you know, connection of black poor to racist criminal justice system, prison industrial complex, disgraceful school systems. You know, how many of the young black brothers and sisters who come out of those urban school systems end up at a Princeton? Well, very, very, very few. I mean, there's a few who are around, but they know they're the, the Michael Jordans of the academy, right? <laughs> Brother Michael and others, they're brilliant, brilliant folk. Right? And their cousins, just not as talented as they are. You see what I mean? Which means they get locked in easily. And, and, and when, I, when we talk more about the present, which I'm going to touch on tomorrow, we'll begin to talk about forms of death in our midst. And of course, Katrina and the Killing Fields of Katrina is just one example, a kind of metaphor in a certain sense, of contemporary legacies of what we're talking about. So in terms of a class division, of course, we could break it down gender as well and region. I mean, it's different in Montana than it is in Alabama, so we have to be, be, be sensitive to regional heterogeneity and differences here. It, it would depend on what your context is. So I'd have to ask you, where do you plan on living? <laughs> you know, how educated you plan on being and so forth and so on. But one hopes that uh, whatever context you end up that these gifts of black folk is something that informs you because these are gifts for each and every one of us. There's nothing better to be than to be a mature, decent, compassionate human being in quest of maturity. And that's in the end, I think, what democracies need in order to stay afloat. We got a question in the back there. We can have more if you want though, brother. It's up to you. Uh-huh. Okay, so I know we're, we're here to talk about kind of the, the gifts of black folk, but I'm interested, and I understand that you might be talking about this tomorrow. What about violence amongst black folks? And you touched on that very briefly when you said, you know, what happens when we lash out and, and you know, it wouldn't be like it is right now. But I was just wondering if maybe you could take a few moments and talk about what does happen when we lash out amongst ourselves, when we lash out at other people, what that creates, does, you know, does beauty come out of that, or is it just rage, is it just... Mm, yeah, no, it's a good question. I think you had in mind my allusion to the construction of the Negro small n, who was taught to hate him or herself, uh, who was taught to hate their skin color and hate their hips and lips and hair texture uh, and that kind of white supremacy in black people which makes it easier to demean and devalue other people who look like them and then with a legal system that tends to impose and keep track much less of the black on black violence than the black on white violence that's historically been the case See. Uh, so you've got both the, the, the psychic violence and you've got the physical violence. And, of course, in the last 30 or 40 years where we've lived in an ice age, I mean, that's essentially what we've been wrestling with uh, since Reagan, where it's been fashionable to be indifferent for the needs of the most vulnerable in regard to issues of justice, not in regard to philanthropy. Because with all the wealth that's been hemorrhaged at the top, we find some very charitable well-to-do folk. I mean, Bill Gates and others, I salute their charity. That's not justice. You know, and the conditions under which they gain access to it need serious debate. Right? But the 
so what has happened is there's been such a removal of wealth from urban working class and poor families to the suburbs and well-to-do that when you have disgraceful school systems, your families are shattered, your communities are weak and feeble, there's not enough jobs with a living wage, the schools are disgraceful, there's no available health care or child care, and guns are ubiquitous, what do you get? Well, if you were in Greenland, you would get high crime. If you're in Australia, you get high crime. It's a human thing. And we have seen this, especially given the, uh, the glorification of violence in the history of America in general. That goes back to the frontier myth. It goes back to the division between civilization and the, fr and, 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 and the kind of barbarians to be conquered, the regeneration of self, the moral regeneration of self through violence, which is the expansion of America, manifest destiny itself vis-a-vis -vis indigenous peoples. And one of the reasons why we have one of the most violent cultures has much to do with our history. I mean, people know that Canada has roughly the same population as California. More Californians kill each other with knives than Canadians kill each other with anything. And this is not in defense of Canada because I'm glad to live in the country. But I mean, that. There is a violence in the culture that goes hand in hand with the material deprivation. Now, if Canada experienced widespread material deprivation like Trenton, it would be an interesting challenge to see how long they'd hold on to that tradition. And I don't wish that on Canada, but I don't wish it on Trenton either. See what I mean? Beginning of an answer to your question, yes, it requires much more... Uh, serious examination. I alluded to it because it is part and parcel. When I come back tomorrow and talk about the forms of psychic death and the forms of spiritual death and the ways in which the gifts of black folk have tried to sustain not just black people but a whole host of others as well, I'll try to, I might have more to say about that. We'll see. Have a wonderful evening, and we hope to see each of you tomorrow for the conclusion of the inaugural Toni Morrison Lectures. Thank you once again. <laughs>